You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome to the Drive Time Show here from the Voice of Islam Radio. You are joined by myself, Salman, and Brother Fahim, and we will be with you, God willing, um, for the next Two hours, hours yeah. by 6 p.m. Fahim, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I, um, I've i got through this weather. I've, uh, I've mentioned it, I think, on an episode before. Uh, I stepped in water, so I managed to keep my trainers nice and dry, uh, despite the weather. Success? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a result. <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm very well, by the grace of God, and looking forward to discuss... The two topics that we have for our listeners today. So it will be Islamophobia. Um, where do anti-Muslim sentiments actually breed from hmm. is what we are going to be discussing in the second hour. And in this regard, we have also asked our listeners a question on our socials, which is who is to blame for the rise of Islamophobia uh, and the, the, the Islamophobia sentiments that are on the rise. So who is to blame for that? Um, you can find us on our socials, just uh, at Voice of Islam UK. And you can also find us on our website, which is voiceofislam.co.uk. And to call us. Um, Get involved you, in the conversation, yeah. Yeah. I mean, tell us what you think about this. Is 0208-687-7878. But for the first hour, of today, the topic that we are discussing is actually speech impediment. Yep. Listen to what is said rather than how it is said. And uh, this is a topic which is very close to to my heart as well because I myself have actually um, struggled with, with some of these issues mm-hmm. um, in my childhood and early teenagers and then obviously by the grace of God it did improve and there were some... Um, trainings yeah. and some exercises that I went through and we will be discussing those in the show today. So we will be uh, delving into a topic especially because we recently had the International Stuttering Awareness Day which mm-hmm. was on the 22nd of October actually. Mm-hmm. So today we are here to explore the importance of listening to what is said rather than how it is said especially when it comes to speech impediments and it's a great subject for radio though isn't it it is it is definitely i mean because um listening just makes radio what it is right yeah and trust me when it comes to such people the 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 worst thing you can do is really point out to them that you are looking at how they're saying it Mm. right so without being i mean it can be difficult for someone who's who's facing something like, like this for the first time. Yeah. But um, try and make that person as, as comfortable as you can do because that will automatically help them in their speech as well. Yeah, and like, you know, in life in general, you always want to feel heard. Mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the struggles that a lot of people can face. Yeah. Um, regardless of, of whether this... Um, is is an impediment uh, whether you have a speech impediment mm. I think being heard is something that is dear to us all and 
it helps us feel seen it helps us feel more connected and i think that it's a it's an important thing to be aware of and it's days like this where they build the awareness and it shows like this where we discuss these things and you know understanding what it is understanding how to deal with it how to navigate situations where yep. where you may come across it mm-hmm. uh, because you know i think for me we um you have to remind yourself that okay maybe you may not suffer from something like this or mm-hmm. have this issue yeah. like you have a personal connection to it but um but like for me i i haven't experienced it as much mm-hmm. and for me that's like it's it's great to understand and learn and appreciate what other people are going through exactly yeah? and that is why here at the voice of islam uk um we always try to bring such topics and we try to always uh, give the islamic understanding yeah. to such things as well and this very specific topic has actually been mentioned in the holy quran right yeah. so islam gives us prayers that we can read to ask for help and ease from allah such as the prayer that was recited by prophet moses and about prophet moses alayhi salatu wasalam upon whom be peace it is said that he also struggled speaking so yeah. he had some sort of uh, speech impediment whether it was uh, maybe a, a, a stutter or a, or a stammer so the prayer that is recited is that moses said my lord open out for me my breast and ease for me my task and loosen the knot from my tongue so that they understand my speech now this is such a perfect speech uh, sorry such a perfect prayer yeah. for such instances and and that reminds me uh of a um meeting of a mulaqat that i had with his holiness mirza masrur ahmed the caliph of the ahmadiyya community mm. and i raised this very issue and i said i have struggled with this and he said just keep reciting this prayer this yes. very prayer and trust me it is such a help Well I de- I tell you something when when I knew you were going to mention this um I thought to share that I actually say this prayer every time just before I start this show. Mhm. Yeah, mm-hmm. too because I always want to make sure that whenever I uh, I'm on this show and I, and I um talk about these really important topics yeah. that I am clearly stating and that I'm not saying something that could uh be misunderstood. mislead someone yeah, yeah. or mislead someone mm-hmm. or that they take action based on something i've said and, and yeah. not understand it so i i've always found that before every single show um this is the prayer that i said so yeah, yeah this is one uh prayer that is not just specifically made for uh a speech impediment but really whenever you are about to speak mm. because as soon as you have uttered these words you've actually laid all your trust in allah the almighty yeah. and i mean for for me personally and really everyone that i've spoken to that makes it much easier for you to speak as well because um you've laid all your trust in allah and yes. and you've told him that look whatever i say from now onwards is in your hands just mm. just, just make sure that it's fine yeah right so th- that is the beauty and we uh, did speak a little about the islamic uh, perspective on this we will come back to this yeah. uh, in a short while we have now on the line with us uh, azra hassan ali who is a nhs uh, specialist from ealing um 
Azra, thank you very much for joining us. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum salam, peace be upon you both too. Um, thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Um, thank you for the opportunity to speak. Actually, I must commend you, first of all, on just raising this topic because uh, there is so much stigma and taboo around it. And one of the most important things we can do is have such open conversations around it. So hats off to you guys. Absolutely. And uh, uh, thank you for that. And this is obviously what we are trying to do. And uh, it is al- always good to have conversation on such topics. So um, tell me, how, how does stuttering t- uh, typically uh, manifest itself and broadly speaking are there different types of speech impediments so um stammering or stuttering and they both mean the same thing is basically interruptions in the natural flow of speech and it's really important to stay to say that stammering or stuttering are both okay because we're changing the way that we view stuttering. And we now know that it's actually just normal continuum of speech. It is just a different way of speaking. If you think about it, the people that you might interact with on a daily basis, no one's speech is actually 100% fluent. If it was, we'd actually sound like robots. And mm-hmm. in reality, we, we just don't. Yeah. So yes, stuttering may sound different. It's definitely a different way of speaking, but it doesn't necessarily equal disability or limitation or anyone being less able to do anything. So it is one of a range of um, speech needs or difficulties or differences. There's a whole range of speech, language and communication needs. Somebody can have difficulties with attention and listening, play, social interaction, understanding what someone is saying, communicating their needs and feelings in a way that's understood, um, using their voice, speech sounds. So actually the range is really wide. Um, There are different types of uh, speech needs and difficulties. And similarly, the causes are quite wide ranging too. They can be developmental, genetic, due to incidents that happen later in life like stroke or traumatic brain injury but actually speech and language needs are really common so two to three children in every classroom have a speech language and communication need Mm -hmm. but it's perhaps not always something that we think about because it's almost an invisible thing it's hidden children also get really good at masking their needs um stuttering in particular actually one percent of the adult population stammer um, and it's really common for children under the age of five to stutter as well. Up to 95% of children under the age of five will stutter at some point. Um, but the majority of those will stop stammering at school age. Right. And so what factors actually contribute to the development of speech impediments? And is this something that can be prevented or are there preventative measures that we can put in place? So there are a lot of different factors like, <clears throat> some of them I mentioned, like developmental difficulties, genetic issues, even incidences that happen like um, involved in accidents, having brain injuries or, or stroke. Um, in terms of factors that contribute to them, I guess we need to think about a combination of different factors. It's never, well, it's very unlikely to ever be one reason why somebody develops a speech and language need. Sometimes we might think it's inherent to that person. It might be a contributory factor, 
but we have to bear in mind that the environment environment plays a really important role in that child or young person's journey in experiencing speech and language differences and needs as well. So, for example, um, if we take the example of someone who has a stutter, now we know that stuttering is neurophysiological. That basically means that there are differences in the structure and function of that person's brain and neurology. So there's a certain amount of that that you can't really help. It's just the way somebody is. Um, but we also know that there is plasticity in the brain when children are young. And so there are lots of things you can do environmentally to support that child as they're growing and developing to be confident and competent communicators. So there's a factor right there. What's going on in that child's or that person's environment? How are the people talking to and interacting with that child or adult? How are they responding to that person? So the focus for your show is... Um, thinking about what somebody is saying, not how they're saying it. And that is really crucial because if we focus on the assumption that everybody has positives and strengths and successful ways of communicating, you're going to be less focused on what someone can't do. And we've all had that experience, haven't we, that when anyone we're interacting with focuses on our strengths, we're likely to do them and develop them and be celebrated more for those things. Um, so those things are really important. Uh, in terms of preventing speech and language needs, they can't always be prevented, but that person's journey or how they experience their needs or difficulties can definitely be different. You, we, we play a really important role in supporting people in whatever their experience is. So we need to be mindful of that and the role that we play. Mm -hmm. um, another example I'll give is with stuttering. I mean, I think as humans, we find silence really, really uncomfortable. Not just talking with someone who stutters, but anybody. If you're like in a, a group of people socializing, it happens to be silent, somebody will sometimes awkwardly even try to break that silence. Yeah. But, you know, it's okay to have silence in conversation. For somebody who stutters, that silence is actually absolutely critical because you're just giving them the time to say what they want. Now, if you're the parent of a child who stutters, for example, you might be tempted to like finish their sentences or give them the word, and you feel like you're being helpful. And, you know, there's nothing wrong in someone having a good intention because we place a lot of emphasis on that, don't we, from our faith as well. Um, when you're yeah. coming from a good place of good intention, that is okay. But we just need to check that that always lands in the right place for the other person. Someone who stutters doesn't, isn't in a position where they don't know the word. They just need time to say it in their own way and in their own time. And that goes a really long way to supporting that person speaking confidence. If they know, I don't need to rush. Somebody's going to give me the time that I need to speak it will hopefully support them to give themselves time to formulate and say whatever they want to. And that's really important in supporting them in their journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that's very interesting. And uh, you're absolutely right there because someone finishing off your uh, the sentence or your word for you can be quite devastating. I, um, I, was, I was telling Fahim earlier as well that I myself had to deal with some of these issues in my childhood and uh, early teenage and that is very crucial because you don't need them to finish that, that, yeah. that sentence of word for you, but they do. Yeah. Um, 
can you tell us about any recent breakthroughs or maybe uh, innovative uh, therapies that are changing the landscape of uh, treatment for stuttering and stammer? Yeah, so there's a, a couple of really interesting breakthroughs actually. So you may have heard about the neurodiversity movement just in general. Um, if you have anyone who has a neurodiversity, it refers to the range of differences in individual brain function and behavior traits. And it's actually regarded as a normal part of normal variation in the human population. So we all have an element of neurodiversity. We're all neurodiverse. But, uh, and so something like stuttering has typically been viewed as abnormal or a disability or reflecting on someone's capability or intelligence or something like that. That has shifted massively because what we've understood is there's no link at all between stuttering and any of those things I've listed. It is just difference. And the moment that you reframe the way you think of it, you're removing some of those unhelpful labels that you might put on somebody that you're interacting with who, who stutters. Uh, and immediately the relationship and that communication exchange then also changes. So that's really important that we start to view stuttering as on the normal continuum of speech. Yes, it's a different, but it's not abnormal. We're also really moving away from that medical model of our understanding of stuttering and how to support people who stutter. So back in the days, um, and perhaps you've experienced this, but back in the day, a family may come to a clinic and sit them down and the parent sits at the back of the room and looks while the therapist sort of therapes the child, you know, and does their thing. And the overwhelming expectation is that you as a professional are going to cure my child and that in X amount of time they're going to stop stuttering. But bearing in mind what we've just talked about, the fact that nobody is ever 100% fluent, we now know that the, the whole idea of a cure or one, aiming for 100% fluency isn't possible but more than that, isn't even needed. It's not even necessary. That's just not normal human yeah. you know, but behavioral characteristics. So we're, we're really moving away. And actually, we're giving parents so much more power and children and young adults who stand for themselves. We're giving them a much more important role in the whole therapy relationship. We're really involving them in decision making. We're really valuing their attitudes, their thoughts and their feelings. So, for example, where I work um, in Ealing, we, our pathway used to be that if your child has a stammer, you immediately go to speech and language therapy. So you're immediately putting that label that there is some problem that needs to be fixed. Right. Um, now, for children under the age of seven, there's lots of evidence around environmental strategies you can use to, su to support that child's speaking confidence. So that is fine. But for children aged over seven who are far more aware of their own speech and of other people's reactions and their social relationships and the impact of their stammer, we really need to uh, move away from that thinking that we're there to kind of just throw all our expertise at them and they're going to receive it and go away and do what we tell them to do because that's almost a little bit unfair. They're the person who stutters. So I might be you know, an expert in speech and language therapy, but you are the expert in you. And I really value your experience and your, your kind of perspective of stammering. So I'm going to ask you, what's the impact of the stuttering for you? Are you even bothered? There are plenty of yeah. children and young people out there who, who don't care. They just want to get on and go to school and make friends. So that's a major shift. Right. But also really trying to promote open 
about stammering. I said at the beginning about it being a taboo. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think people are sometimes a bit scared almost of mentioning the word stuttering or yeah. stammering, particularly it's a label, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they'll kind of think, oh, but if I say it, they'll be offended, or if I say it, it will make it worse. Mm-hmm. Now, there's actually a research study of teenagers in America. They were teenagers, so they'd been stammering for a long time. And they were asked, does anyone know that you stammer? And they all said no. And the researchers said, well, what makes you think no one knows you stammer? And they all said, because if they knew, they would have talked to us about it. Now, clearly, they were there because they were identified as children who stammer. So somebody knows they do. But by not talking about it, you're actually creating, you know, that elephant in the room. I know I'm stammering. I know you know I'm stammering. But you're not talking to me about it. So something must be really wrong. So you're actually making it into a like a bigger deal and a problem and it doesn't need to yeah yeah that is exactly the right word you are exactly creating this feeling of shame around something that absolutely doesn't need to be because it is just a part of your characteristic it is a a thing to be um, celebrated it is the way you have been created and that is that and not to say it is easy it's not Um, there are plenty of challenges people face for sure but it's definitely not something shameful at all so openness and now when i say openness i mean we really encourage the child or the young person who stammers to be open themselves so to not be afraid to say i have a stammer please give me time to talk please don't finish my sentences um and actually usually we always find that the listener really appreciates that openness because then there's no kind of um question mark over gosh what's going on here and i'm not quite sure how to respond right You've made it really clear, and then the conversation can just move on. But also openness from the rest of society's point of view, we really need to bake, uh, break down all these walls that we've built up to talking about it and remove any sense of shame we have. You know, when you um, mention stammering to someone who has hidden it for so long, we often see a, a visible reduction in physical tension around a child's shoulders and neck and jaw because it's that feeling of wow like finally someone gets me Hmm. and they're just telling me honestly and openly about something i've hidden for so long it's not nice to bear that burden for such a long time or feel like you can't be open about such an important part of you Mm -hmm. um finally i'll just say that the other thing that we're really trying to do in terms of innovation and breakthroughs is, is um the media so you know, if you talk to anyone about stammering, they'll say immediately say things like, oh, what, the King's Speech? Or, you know, oh, they'll yeah. mention that one movie, that one single movie they've watched in their whole life that featured someone who stammered. <laughs> that's not representative yeah. of the population that stammers. Uh, you know, often you'll have also characters... Not everyone's a king. <laughs> not, not everyone's a king, but yeah. maybe they're a king in their own way. So we yeah. need to find out... What else is about them, apart from their stammer? What else are they good at? What are their goals in life? And support them towards being their own king. You know, anything is possible. Stammering doesn't have to hold you back. The labels are really unhelpful. Also, in movies, you'll find that the main character who has a stammer happens to also have a learning difficulty or some other associated thing, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't represent the population who stutters. So what we're really campaigning for is just better representation. You know, it's okay 
for supporting characters in movies to also have a stutter, just as a matter of course. It doesn't need to be sensationalized, as it were. Thank you so much. That was really informative and helpful to our discussion. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Jazakallah for the opportunity. All right. That was um, Azra Hassan uh, Ali, who is an NHS specialist from Ealing, and she provided us with some great context um, into the discussion that we're having. And uh, Yep, um, great discussion that we were having with uh, Sister Azra. And uh, I mean, one thing is clear, there needs to be a lot of um, awareness around this topic. Um, we yeah, need to talk about it. We need to talk about this yeah. a lot more. And the more you talk about it, the more normal things will start becoming. And yeah, just it, the, I, like it really got to me in the sense where it was this like shame that's come around it. Like no one should feel that way about the way they speak. Um, mm. And it's yeah, it's if I'm unintentionally doing that, that's probably because I'm unaware, yeah. right? And that's yeah. why we need to have these conversations. That's why we need to speak to people you know, to understand one. A major factor that comes into play here is that it is not us or the adults that actually make the main difference when it comes to this feeling of guilt or this feeling of shame. Mm. Obviously, we we, we do uh, our bit in this as well. Mm. But especially when a child with a stutter or a stammer goes to school, that is the worst place. And... uh, There is so much a child brings home from that and doesn't have necessarily anyone to discuss with. Yeah. That's where the problem lies and that's where those feelings of shame are really coming from. But obviously, we will keep talking about this and raising awareness as much as we can. Um, we have with us our next guest caller on line with us, which is Lee Reeves, uh, CFO of Stuttering Therapy Resources and a, a person who them, themselves stutter as well. Uh, Lee, thank you very much for being with us. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm honoured uh, to be w- with you. Um, thank you so much for being with us and the honour is really ours. Um now, Lee, being a CFO of the uh, STR, which is short for Stuttering Therapy Resource, yes. we would like to know, firstly, what is STR and why it was started? Certainly. Uh, well, um, as you said, STR stands for Stuttering Therapy Resources. We're a, a small publishing company started a little over 10 years ago by my wife, Nina, who is a speech-language pathologist and specialist in fluency disorders, and her co-author, Dr. Scott Yaris, who also specializes in stuttering and and is a uh, professor and researcher. They create and write clinical materials for speech-language pathologists to uh, better assess and treat children who stutter. Scott's wife, Virginia, does the design and the layout, and I'm the chief financial officer. So we're a small company, but we're very impactful in the stuttering uh, therapy community. Right, and we'd love to hear from you about your personal journey with stuttering. Like, how? what was it like when you first became aware of it? Please, please if you could share. 
Certainly. Uh, well, um, my parents uh, or told me that I started to stutter when I was around three or four, uh, but it, it wasn't until I was nine, about nine, that I came to realize that my speech was difficult, uh, different, and embarrassing. Um, even though I had speech therapy in, in school, I struggled with periods of very significant stuttering throughout my early uh, years of life. It, it wasn't until my third year of college when I was fortunate enough to find a therapist at the at the right time that helped me learn how not only to manage my stuttering, but to come to terms with it, uh, to be more open about it and less concerned about the opinions of others. Um, we also started a, a self-help group in the community. That was my first self-help group that I started, um, and that was very critical, uh, really being connected uh, with others who, who share um, uh, same issue is, uh, is re in my opinion, is is uh, of vital importance. Mm -hmm. um, now, did having a speech impediment affect you or or stop you from pursuing what you wanted to? Uh, I mean, be it in your career or any other ambition. Well, you know, my desire to be a veterinarian started when I was about five or six years old. Stuttering never affected my desire uh, or my pursuit toward that goal. However, there were many, many times when I had serious doubts about whether I would ever actually be able to reach my dream. Because of my inability to speak like others, to speak without significant struggle, uh, to speak stuttering. And in the end, I, I just feel very fortunate to not only have become a veterinarian, but to have had an amazing almost 50-year career. Right. And um, as, as we promote stuttering awareness, what message or insight would you like to convey to our listeners about embracing diversity in communication styles? Oh, you know, that's, it's an excellent question, and it's so t t timely. You know, stuttering is a neurologically-based developmental communication disorder or difference that affects roughly 1% of the population. That, that means that, that there are over 80 million people in the world who stutter. It has no cultural, socioeconomic, uh, political, geographical, or religious uh, kind of boundaries of any kind. Sadly, though, stuttering has been ridiculed and stigmatized for, for thousands of years, and those affected uh, many times have been marginalized by different, different cultures or societies. While it's true that that our struggle to speak sometimes appears or sounds strange and really different, but it has nothing to do with intelligence or a, a multitude of other abilities. You know, there there are successful people who stutter in every conceivable vo vocation. My message is 
to listen to what people are saying instead of how they are saying it. Um, is as far as communication style, stuttering is simply uh, verbal diversity. Absolutely. Um, that's a very lovely message at the end, and uh, we would like to thank you, Lee, for taking all your time to be with us and help us raise awareness in, in, in this regard. Thank you very much, and I wish you a lovely day ahead. Thank you, and same to you. Thank you. Peace be upon you. Bye-bye. So this uh, was um, Lee Reeves, who is the CFO of um, Stuttering Therapy Resources and a person who himself um, has uh, stutters and um, has just told us about his journey and how stuttering can be a problem. But we need to try and understand that it is important what is being said rather than how it is being said, yeah. as, as we really did say in the beginning of this topic as well. Uh, instead of uh, stigmatizing this this issue, it is just a different way of expressing yourself. Yeah. And that is it. But it does not um, hold you back in, a, in, in any other way. Uh, a person that has some sort of speech impediment is nowhere um, less than any other person yeah. their their IQ their intelligence is all up there with you if if not better better than you yeah the the thing is that and I'm sure we'll touch on it in the second hour as well is that I feel like a lot of the times this this stigmatism uh, stigmatization of things or this um, you know a bad way of dealing with things usually comes from a lack of understanding mm. and that lack of understanding leads to fear mm. and then fear can either lead to um, different things and often it could fear leads to ridicule mm. because like oh I don't understand that so I'm going to make fun of it yep. and yep. I think that that's where it's important to to really hone in that, on that message um, that was really well put by Lee as well is that what is being said? What is being said? Not the delivery, not the way it's being said. What is actually being said by yep. the person? And yep. have the patience, have the um, the compassion to just focus on exactly what is being said. Because ultimately, if we can't communicate with one one another, then you know That's how are we go- how are we going to proceed? Right? Exactly. So exactly. it is really important in. I'm just I'm just glad we do shows focused on things like this. Absolutely. And I mean, th- there are um, so many other issues around the world. And over time, humankind has learned to deal with such uh, with 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 certain aspects of life. Um, we have raised awareness. We have tried to normalize things. Some things have become normal. And in some things, we're obviously still behind, such as this topic today, yeah. where people still need more awareness but um, it is much better than what it was maybe 100 years ago or even yeah. 50 years ago because the thing is is that it's it's about understanding that diversity and I think that we see it in cultures we see it in accents we see it in so many other ways mm-hmm. we just need to see it in this as well that yeah. it's it's a spectrum essentially where you from one end someone will speak a certain way and someone will speak another yep. way and there's no I really like the, the point of um 
our first guest that uh, was saying that if everybody had perfect speech, we would talk like robots. And mm. now I'm thinking mm. about that. I'm like, that's why the the robot voice is very distinctive. Uh, if Absolutely. you think about it, because yes. it's like there's no context. There like, is you no. Know, there's no personality. Right? There's no yeah. So w- when a robot is speaking, there there is no sort of fluctuation in yeah. in, in the voice. There's no change in pitch. There's no. Yeah, you know. But as as human beings, some of us we speak very very fast, mm. and the others speak slow. Yeah, we, we were some uh, quietly. Some we were quietly. just we were just talking about this exactly. before the show. So before right? the show, we were still talking about yeah. this that we all have our own pitches basically, yeah. uh, which we use to speak on. Yeah. But this there, there is this uh, diversity. You you mentioned accents. I mean, how mm. how many. Professors, do we have hmm. um, that go around the world uh, to to um, teach and at various universities, yep. and they bring their own accents, right? Yep. So no one really cares whether they have the proper British accent hmm. or they have the right American accent. They can bring their own native accent, but hmm. it is not again how they're saying it, yep. but it is what they're what bringing they're to saying, the table, yeah. and that is uh, what is important. Um, and going. Right away to our next uh, guest speaker, which is Sister Rabia Salim, who is a speech and language therapist working with young autistic children and has been practicing with various population for over 15 years. Sister Rabia, Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Um, Sister Rabia, are you with us? Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum salam. Jazakallah. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. Um, as you know, we are discussing um, speech impediments today. And it, the, the message that we have for our listeners today is that it is important what is said rather than how um, it is said. A question um, I have for you to start with is what unique challenges um, do children with autism who stutter face in their speech development and how do you say um, how, differ from the other population? Um, so I'd like to clarify um, initially uh, the difference between the autistic population and other populations. Um, I think when it comes to stuttering um, it's such a broad range as your first guest was um, discussing about genetic reasons and etc etc um and um for for any kind of speech impediment um and um with autism um there are also a variety of reasons for um you know uh, it's just a neurodiverse condition there there is some um, more evidence coming out how it's not something that needs to be suppressed or um it needs to be nurtured and um, so when I have somebody um, who's come to see me um, who's, who has autism um, and they may have some speech impediments, um, it could be stuttering, it could be um, maybe a delay in um, their letters, it could be a language barrier. Um, I usually look at them for the individual, so that's how I would go into the the session um, and, and find out what uniquely they're experiencing, look at their case history, um, their cultural background, and just um, pull all the sensitivities together and then uh, take it from there. Right. And are there some 
specific strategies or techniques that the speech and language specialists use to help children with autism to manage their stuttering? Specifically, um, the ones that I have used uh, over my um, time as being a speech therapist um, have been varied. Um, I will use a variety of techniques and depending on how much the child understands, um, they may have good visual processing, they may have um, a high amount of language, they may be very expressive. Um, depending on that, then I would decide, uh, will I use visuals? You know, is it better to, um, you know, use um, speech? Uh, maybe, uh, you know, looking at their age group as well, it would depend um, on, on the kind of materials we use. We use play and more engaging things for younger children. Um, as children get older, I think until about the age of seven, um, we have, uh, we think about their worldview and we take that into perspective, into the technique we give them. So it is about how they feel about their stuttering. And, and, and that's a part of therapy. Um, I think sometimes therapeutic relationship is everything. Um, so how the person's relating to me as a therapist um, can affect you know, what's going on in the session. Um, and also their view. I would uh, see how comfortable they are to discuss that with me. Um, and then, you know, how, if, if I would feel that they've expressed it to me somehow, that maybe they are anxious in certain situations, um, we would look at that area. Uh, we would see, is it certain groups of people you more, you feel more anxious with? Or is it um, at home or in school? What kind of environment is this happening more? Um, is it certain letters that it's happening? Um, and then their worldview would come in is whether they feel self-stigma around the issue. And then we would try to tackle that as well. And um, parents are often involved at that age. And we would definitely do a whole family approach, a child-centered approach. And then we would, you know, give the family empowerment um, to be able to, um, you know, start the journey of accepting certain aspects of this, you know, different, really, something to be celebrated for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking about family now, there are parents who maybe cannot afford um, speech and language specialists, but would still want to help the child with speech and language. Are there any me methods that they should or can adopt to help their child? Yeah, there's so much they can do. It's a lot of pressure for parents, I feel, um, to A, to come to terms sometimes. Uh, there may be cultural reasons um, about with their difference, uh, you know, how they feel about the difference in, in their children to what we as a society accept is quote-unquote normal. Um, so uh, parents would be supported through that. Uh, we would provide um, resources. Um, we would, uh, number one priority would be um, to see how empowered the family feel and support them in that journey. Um, that our first guest mentioned about the journey 
sometimes you may um, be invited with the family for the the child's whole, you know, schooling. Um, I would recommend parents if they have questions to, you know, do some research on, you know, NHS website, um, find out strategies through that first. That will give you kind of an overview. And then I would encourage them to talk to um, a professional, maybe in their uh, in a group, you know, in their circle, uh, who would be happy. Many speech therapists are very happy to just offer advice um, on based on how much they can advise in that situation. Um, they would be happy to sign post, um, and um, they could also remember that silence isn't bad. Uh, like your first guest said, that the more time you give your child, the more um, receptive they will be. And they will slowly become more empowered to communicate. And um, the key is, is that communication is a human right. And everyone has the right to communicate their, and express their wants and needs. And so helping parents to give their children the tools to, you know, communicate whatever they can. Right. And from an awareness point of view, as as a society, what should we be mindful of when dealing with such children? Uh, we should just um, treat them um, as others and um, as human beings. And, yeah. uh, and definitely there is stigma. Um, society has put a lot of pressure on families and children. And um, uh, we just to raise awareness, uh, you know, that... Um, some, you know, about this, um, about the di- diversity of population and how we don't do label people. Um, I think that can start, um, make a good start for families who are experiencing um, this and perhaps also, you know, continue the discussion in terms of um, uh, the... The, the reasons behind um, why we, we feel this way. Um, I think the more pressure families feel, um, anxiety increases, and that can sometimes make it difficult for, for, for anyone trying to communicate. Um, so it has definitely something that should be celebrated. Uh, we have um, some examples uh, there is a poet who had uh, who had speech impediment, Raymond Antrobus. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I may be permitted, I just wanted to read one line from his poetry. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, um, he says, um, so he had a hearing impairment, not a stammer, but this uh, resulted in him having a speech impediment, and um, he got he was uh, working at BBC, and one of the one of his colleagues told him that he needed to speak clearer. So then he started to write poetry to express himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I am sick of sounding out your rules. You tell me I breathe too loud and it's rude to make noise when I eat. Sent me to speech therapist, said I was speaking a language of holes. I was pronouncing what I heard, but your judgment made my syllables disappear. 
but I think we just need to be a little bit more understanding in society. Absolutely. And uh, again, a, a great message um, for all of us to understand and really not be judgmental and uh, just listen what is being said and not how it's being said. Um, Sister Rabia, thank you very much, Jazakallah, for being with us. And I wish you a lovely day ahead. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be upon you. Jazakallah for your time. Assalamu alaikum. Um, we were just um, speaking with um, Rabia Salim, who is a speech and language therapist and has been working um, in this field for over 15 years. We are now um, really running against the time for him. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, this is all about awareness. Yeah. So, you know, we are focusing on increasing our awareness about people who stutter and widely about speech language um disorders so it's it's really important that we actually mention how we can make things more comfortable for people mm. so stuttering can vary from person to person sometimes it is not that obvious sometimes it is obvious people can stammer less on some days and more on others uh, in different situations we should therefore always be mindful of the comments we pass on mm-hmm. Um, the main tip is to actually actively listen to the person. Don't make fun of them or think less of them, but listen to what they're saying. Like, wait for it and make sure that you hear exactly what they're saying. And, you know, th- this is concurred by uh, an Islamic point of view um, where Allah Almighty has stated in the Holy Quran, O ye who believe, let not one people deride another people who make who may be better than they defame not your own people nor call one other b- another by nicknames and that's in chapter 49 verse 12 we we talk here through this verse where it emphasizes the importance of mutual respect and it discourages deriding or mocking of others regardless of differences it, islam through the quran is is advising believers not to belittle people or engage in negative behavior um, and promotes a sense of equality. Mm-hmm. The reason why this verse is so relevant for our topic today is because people with speech and language disorders are often mocked and because of their condition they are perceived or assumed to be less intelligent than others. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you're going to take one thing only one thing. I'd, I'd love you to take everything away from this, from yeah, this uh, yeah. show. But if you're going to take one thing, like, don't think less of other people. Give them the time to, and and hear them out. I think there is um, this uh, great video that's been um, made by the Airedale NHS Stemmering Centre, and uh, the video is called "I Don't Need to Be Fixed." what I wish the world uh, understood about stammering. So this is people who start to have shared their thoughts on how they wished to be treated and how they should be um, understood. Most commonly, being patient is the key. Hmm. As all of our listeners, all of our guest callers have also explained, um, don't try and guess or finish their words. It can be disempowering and unhelpful for you um, if if you if you get it wrong, um, 
try to put them at ease by giving them a smile. So don't make them feel awkward. Yeah. Don't don't show them that you are in a hurry to for them to finish or uh, blank expression yeah. on your face or something. Yeah. Um, speaking on the phone uh, is particularly difficult for some people who stuttered. So be patient and give them plenty of time. Don't tell them to or relax or take a breath or slow down. And don't make a joke on them. I mean, that's the last thing yeah. you you you, you want to do. Um, from an Islamic point of view, um, we find the example of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, his companion, Hazrat Bilal, who was an uh, Abyssinian and was not fluent in Arabic, while speaking Arabic, he would make several mistakes, mainly in pronunciation for example the natives of abyssinia would pronounce the arabic letter sheen as seen so the sha sound mm. would actually be pronounced as a, as a sha sound thus during the azan which is the call to prayer instead of saying ashhadu uh, hazrat bilal would say ashhadu and the arabs would actually laugh at this seeing the arabs laugh uh, at hazrat bilal the prophet may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him said you mock the azan of Bilal, whereas Allah the Almighty on his throne is pleased with him when he calls the azan. God Almighty is more delighted by his ashadu than your ashadu. So the Prophet said that his wrong pronunciation in the eyes of Allah is mm. still better than your right pronunciation. Yeah. So your worldly so think, pride yeah. and, and your being judgmental is just completely out of place and it is actually again what is being said and the intentions behind it obviously mm. so this shows that the prophet made the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him never treated anyone with disrespect due to their disability race or any other factor yeah so as as we close today uh, we would like the listeners to put themselves in the shoes of people who stutter um, through the following example yeah, so envision giving a public speech, right? You and you're addressing a massive audience. Your nerves are getting the better of you, and the words are just not coming out. Now picture the audience not wearing a smile, but visible looks of irritation. Not actively engaged, you know, maybe using their phone or something, but uh, rather bothered. How would you feel, right? That, that is the way you can put yourself in the shoes um, of someone who stutters. Uh, it is it is a scenario where support and understanding take a back seat and the anxiety of being misunderstood takes center stage. So Islam teaches to fulfill rights of your fellow beings by being kind to them and not roaming around wearing arrogance. Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, Verily, the most honorable amongst you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Uh, this is the benchmark that Allah the Almighty has set and it is not righteous to mock another person in any circumstance, um, especially this one. Absolutely not. And thus, um, this is the benchmark that has been set by Allah the Almighty. Yeah. Um, time has gotten the, 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 the better of us. Um, very important topic that we were discussing today speech impediment this uh, beautiful show this, of this hour was uh, put together by our producer Sophia Amir 
and uh, we will now be heading towards the news. Please do join us right after the news break as we will be discussing Islamophobia and where is, uh, anti-Islamic sentiments breed from. This will be another very interesting show, so please do stay tuned. Uh, till then, assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you all. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you all and welcome back. Um, to the Drive Time Show um, from the Voice of Islam Radio. We are with you, myself, Salman, and Brother Fahim. In the first hour, we discussed speech impediment and uh, it is important to listen to what is being said rather than how it is being said. Um, Now we are going to be speaking about Islamophobia where do anti-Muslim sentiments breed from? We will be talking about this topic in great detail. We do have guest callers for you to discuss this topic, but we would also like to hear from you. Who is to blame for the rise in Islamophobia sentiments? This is the question that we have asked you on our socials. You can find us at Voice of Islam UK. On our website, which is voiceofislam.co.uk, or please feel free to call in at 0208-687-7878. That is 0208-687-7878. Fahim, Islamophobia is something that we all have faced at some point, isn't it? Yeah, so it's Islamophobia Awareness Month. So that's why, that's the context of why we're bringing up the show. We are Voice of Islam, so we're kind of experts in the field. Um, the thing with Islamophobia, I think I've said it on a previous show as well. For me, Islamophobia comes from an insecurity. Mm-hmm. Right? I think that people are Islamophobic because they don't understand or have an explanation for their faith, their belief, or their purpose or existence. Mm-hmm. And because of that insecurity, it causes them to ridicule and to um, hate uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is one thing that you will probably find with m- most Muslims you engage with um is their conviction and their belief. And I think that that insecurity that people face can lead them to become Islamophobic. And for me, that's where it's bred from. It's from an insecurity of not understanding your purpose, your existence, um, your faith, and believing in a higher power. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, Islamophobia... It's not something which is very recent. Hmm. has been around for as long as we can think back, really. But in the past 100 years or so, you'd see that it has been on the rise. And especially some of the events that took place over the years, um, 9-11 being obviously one of them. Do you remember where you were when when you heard about 9-11 and do you remember any, say any anecdote you have for us? 
I don't remember where I was exactly when it happened, but I do remember that things got quite tense hmm. afterwards. Um, and Muslims were looked at from a very different point of view, hmm. if I can say that. Um, I do remember that um, Muslim women, especially those that cover up uh, in, a, in a hijab, um, they there there was a sense of fear, really, mm. right? But when you really think about this, and the, the the question one should ask themselves is, what is the proportion of Muslims, or what is the proportion of self-proclaimed Muslims that have actually done something like that, mm. right? There is something around 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, yeah. 1.6, um, if, 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 if I'm not getting my, my, my stats wrong. Mm. It's not even a few hundred that are actually doing these atrocities, these yeah. atrocities this, this terrorism, mm -hmm. etc., etc. So how can you possibly blame the whole Muslim community for something mm. like that? Or the religion, yeah. Right? That can only happen when you are being given a certain message mm. through certain platforms mm -hmm. on a regular basis which makes sure that your mind is shaped in a certain way. Yeah. Other than that, this is not possible. If all of us were to evaluate and analyze this whole situation, Right. You see, the Holy Quran mentions in one of its verses where a prophet was addressing his people and said that I have spent a lifetime within you. Right? Yeah. So this is the, the parameter of judging someone. How comes a neighbor can start hating his own neighbor mm. overnight, whereas they probably were living next door for the past 20 years? So his whole character has been in front of you. But then something or someone which is very powerful, uh, which has the ability to influence your mind, comes and says, look, you know what? Your, your neighbor is a potential terrorist. Yeah. See, the thing is, um, two points with that. So uh, circling back, for me, I remember going to school the day after and being dropped off by my mother mm -hmm. um, and her saying to me that for him be careful um, there's not going to be a great sentiment around Muslims um, yeah. you know make sure you pray and, and look after yourself and let me know of, of any issues and like that that I remember very clearly um, post 9-11 um, and then since then I think you're right like you don't I've always had a problem with not just, just not just this issue here I've always had a problem with anybody who takes an anomaly and uses that to make a judgment on the whole thing yep right like this one it's like taking you know if something is steady 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 and then there's one anomaly happens and then you use that one anomaly to make sure that you have a complete warped sense 
of understanding of the mm. whole thing that mm. has been so consistently like the neighbor example that you gave and yeah for me again it comes back to being insecure about your faith your purpose because when you have security conviction in that mm-hmm. you can be in any situation and not change who you are mm. or what you believe because of your conviction because you truly understand it and you know why you're here you understand how the world works and you're not influenced by these anomalies mm. which some people use to paint a whole ar- whole argument and it's the premise of it, the whole argument and you know like you said there are certain platforms there are certain um things that are there to influence how we feel about certain things the language used the the way it's spoken about the imagery that's used you know mm. these things have an impact and we saw it um with the whole cambridge analytica um yep. scandal yep. how um the use of media can influence people's decisions mm. so i think that that's why it's important for us to talk about islamophobia to understand where did these anti-muslim sentiments breed from and you know understand that there's so many different causes for it but the more we're aware of it the more we're aware of what we consume the the influences the the fact that it is an anomaly in certain situations that it can help stop us from thinking a certain way about a religion or the people who follow that religion absolutely and education awareness dialogue mm. these are very very crucial when it comes to such topics yeah. right because i can find um very hateful teachings within every religion really if i wanted to yeah right that's the key right if you wanted if to if i wanted to but the lens in which but, you but i them. can exactly so it it is about your own lens really mm. and it is about how you want to understand and perceive something it is about your own bias you know today and as as you mentioned rightly because uh, the concept of god is so clouded in this day and mm. age for people to understand the islamic concept of god and why a muslim does what he does and i mean how a muslim understands the whole concept um of of god the existence of god and 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 how we act in everyday life that can only be understood if you were to understand where this whole concept is coming from um we will now speak about this topic in more detail with our first guest caller which is Tariq Ataul Munim he's a, a a civil engineer from the Polytechnic University of Valencia um for 5 years he worked in Indra SA as project manager in India in 2015 um he left as an engineer to work uh in the service of the MDA Muslim community as a director of Spanish test department and since 2018 he is also the editor of the magazine the review of religions in spanish uh, brother tariq assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the drive time show 
Walaikum salam. Uh, very nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Jazakallah for, for being with us. Um, in what ways can individuals and communities promote tolerance and understanding towards Muslims and Islam? Uh, yes, uh, I think it's uh, actually a very important topic. And uh, to be honest, I, I think the main thing is that Muslims themselves uh, need to be proactive and uh, work towards uh, creating that example of tolerance, of understanding, because I think the more examples people are able to view of Muslims performing good deeds, of integrating with society, of helping each other, uh, etc., etc., that's going to be the best way uh, to to counteract some of the um, other things that are, are that are happening, which uh, you've been discussing uh, just now, like extremist behaviors or so on. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, by the grace of Allah, I live in, in Pedrobat, which is the town where we have our uh, first mosque in, in Spain. And uh, here now, people have been or have lived here for the past 40 years uh, with a mosque built here. And uh, because of mm, all the activities that are done here, uh, you know, we are we as Muslims, uh, we can say, are part of this society. People feel comfortable with us. We feel comfortable with them. And the uh, the environment of tolerance and understanding here is, is mutual between each other. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever there's any kind of issues in the news and so on, uh, people understand uh, that this is not what a true Muslim does. I believe there is a, a, a pizza called Pizza Mesquita at one of the local restaurants. Is that right? <laughs> That is correct. Yes, uh, yes, there's yes. there's also a, a baguette as well. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Nice. And um, so, given that you're in media uh, with the review of religions, um, I wanted to ask you about the the role media plays uh, in actually shaping this public perception of Islam uh, and Muslims. Could you, you know, explain to us the role of the media and how potentially this uh, can influence um, people and how that influence can be mitigated? Yes, uh, I think uh, media does play a huge role on uh, spreading um, news in, in a good way, but also of generalizing or magnifying certain uh, behaviors uh, which are not, as, as you were discussing earlier, actually, are not representative of the uh, Muslim community at large. So I think that uh, it is something that we need to be very aware of, and we need to actually uh, counter um, those uh, impressions that are given, those wrong impressions that are given of, of what a Muslim is, of what a Muslim does, by ourselves uh, getting involved in uh, spreading the, the true message of Islam, and as I said before, also uh, providing a good example ourselves. Um, it is sometimes difficult uh, because normally it seems that not enough uh, attention is given to those little you know, acts or activities or things that uh, small Muslim communities, uh, peaceful communities try to promote. 
Uh, media doesn't seem to give that much importance to those things, as opposed to maybe if there's, you know, a terrorist attack or something, then suddenly that's an old headlines, right? Um, but I do think that uh, participating in local communities and doing these activities does mitigate that. Uh, many people will often, um, you know, speak to you about issues related to Islam. And if they have actually met Muslims in their life, and those Muslims have been uh, good neighbors or uh, just good work partners or whatever the case may be, their impression of Islam will not be so easily uh, you know, um, changed towards a negative impression, which is what sometimes the media portrays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now... Imam uh, Karam Ilahi Zafar, he, he, he came to Spain many, many decades ago. And I believe he, he, he was your grandfather, right, if, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. So how do you compare the um, Islamophobia back in his time, as he was obviously the pioneer missionary of the, the community in Spain, and now obviously many decades later, how do you compare the rise of Islamophobia? I think there's two sides uh, to that question, um, specifically in the case of Spain, uh, because here, back in the day, especially when Dona uh, Caramela Zavarsav was, uh, was a missionary here and he was preaching actively, um, Islam, uh, or preaching Islam wasn't allowed. Uh, at that time, you know, uh, the church had a huge influence in Spain, and because of that thing, uh, religious freedom was not really uh, you know, uh, you, you couldn't spread the message of other religions. So in that sense, uh, the situation was uh, more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but as, you know, uh, times changed and then we entered a, a democratic uh, state in Spain the, when the democracy started, uh, then those issues were not there anymore. And I think then there was less Islamophobia than there is now. There were less Muslims in Spain at that time also, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so I think since, you know, um, 2001 uh, with the uh, you know, terrorist attacks in the U.S. and in Spain in 2004, which is uh, the year in which uh, some trains were bombed um, by, by, you know, some jihadists, uh, and that caused a, a huge... Um, Let's say uh, it was a very big uh, thing that happened here. Um, more, almost 200 people died. Mm. Uh, around 2,000 people were injured in, in those attacks. So I think since you know that that, that time onwards, uh, the impression of Islam really did change um, towards worse. Uh, recently, in 2017, also there was uh, another terrorist attack in in Barcelona, mm -hmm. uh, where several people were. Uh, run down by a van. So, yes, uh, uh, I mean, these uh, events, I think, have also um, created this, uh, you know, rise of, of anti-Muslim sentiments. And when we visit um, Spain, um, for, from a sort of vacation point of view, there, uh, there seems to be a massive difference between the North and the South. When it comes to Islamophobia, and the effects of it, do you feel that there is a difference there as well um, when it comes to the bigger cities, Barcelona, Madrid, etc., and then the south? 
yes, um, I think there definitely is a noticeable difference. Um, and it mostly has to do with the fact that the more traditional uh, regions of Spain are, are in the north, so the more um, traditional Christian uh, people, societies are, are more towards the north, whereas towards the south, people are more, um, you know, in, in that sense, uh, maybe more, more open-minded, they're more, um, uh, you know, open-hearted even, I mm -hmm. would say. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible that, uh, you know, this, this also has to do with the influence of uh, Muslims because we can't forget that Muslims in Spain lived for almost a millennia. Yeah. And most of yeah. those Muslims were actually in the south area of Spain, whereas in the north, you know, those were the, uh, the places where the Muslims didn't actually reach. So, I mean, people here, they have Muslim blood. And that's, no one can deny that at the end of the yeah, day, right? Almost, yeah. Right. And... Um... So, have you personally experienced or witnessed instances of hate or discrimination due to your faith as a Muslim while living in Spain? Well, uh, actually, I have um, seen or known of cases of, of hate or discrimination. But, I mean, in, in my case, by, by the grace of God, um, I can't say that uh, I have memories or, or events that have uh, been meaningful in my life in, in a negative way due to my faith. Um, and I also think that it has a lot of a lot to do with with how, uh, you know, the, the first Ahmadi Muslims in Spain um, integrated in, in society and also the example they gave. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, there was very few of us uh, back in the day when I was born, right? Mm -hmm. But each one of those Muslims were already well respected by the members of their local society. So because of that, um, even though people had not uh, much idea about Islam, they just knew what they were seeing uh, by, by the people who were living there. And uh, news then was also maybe not um, so negative about Islam. So I think the good example that people gave back in the day made it so that um, during my youth um, there wasn't that much uh, Islamophobia. And then, uh, you know, as, as I grew older as well, uh, being able to openly speak to my colleagues or my friends um, about Islam, uh, feeling comfortable myself with my religion to the point where I could openly, you know, say, you know, I can't participate in this or I can't eat you know, pork or whatever, or I need to do my prayers, things like that would actually help other people understand who I was as a person. And then uh, that would, you know, uh, create a better understanding and tolerance uh, between us. Um, in fact, I'll just give you a little example. But when I, um, when I left my company back in 2015 to start working for the, uh, the Muslim community, uh, I remember uh, my boss's comment, um, when, when I told him, you know, the purpose of me uh, leaving the company. And because he already knew, you know, that I uh, was involved with the activities in, in, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said to me that, you know, I actually value uh, the fact that you're able to leave uh, a stable job for something that you're passionate about, mm. right? So mm. what I'm trying to say is th he understood that uh, for me as a Muslim, this was important, 
and he respected that in, in, in a way, right? So I think uh, all these things uh, are important for, for fighting against Islamophobia or anti-Muslim uh, feelings. Right. And, um, so I just want to flip that around and ask you then, so what has been some of the sentiments when you have done this? So you mentioned that you're able to talk about, you know, why you don't participate in certain things or why you don't do things and they've educated. But like, what's been the reaction? So what's been the, if you haven't received or experienced as much Islamophobia, how how is the how has the reaction been when you discuss this or, or when you're um, preaching uh, about Islam? Right, so that is a, actually a very interesting question and, and I'll answer with a, another small story. Um, I was once, while well, I was working in, in this company called Indra, uh, we, we mostly took care of uh, electronic machines in, in train stations and metro stations and so on. So once we had to travel to Seville uh, mm. to, you know, it was a project we were having there. So um, in Seville, uh, we had to meet with some um, uh, representatives of the, um, you know, the, the train uh, company or the station, the, the people who run the, the, you know, all the management of the stations and so on. And we spent the whole morning just working and doing our um, our job and so on. And you know, uh, lunch was approaching, so. You know, we hadn't really discussed anything about religion or any such thing, just normal conversation like, you know, you would have with any other person. But then lunchtime came and um, uh, we had to choose what to eat. And obviously, you know, I, I told them that, you know, since I'm a Muslim, I, I don't eat pork. So, uh, you know, therefore, the, the conversation of Islam and, and religion came out. Um, and, you know, we spoke about uh, Islam. They had many questions. I answered them. Um, we had lunch, and after lunch, you know, when we kind of got to know each other a little bit through this uh, through this conversation, the chief of the uh, management company of these this train line that runs in in, in the south in Seville, he actually told me he said, "Look, I thought that all Muslims were you know, people who behaved in a very you know barbaric way, radical way." And that's the idea that I had about Islam. But after I got to know you, I realized that, you know, this is not the case. And, you know, obviously he kept asking questions. And But my point is that my experience is that, uh, as you were also mentioning at the beginning of this program, people tend to fear what they do not know. And uh, ignorance, unfortunately, is, is a very big um problem. But I have found that when you speak to people, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a deep discussion about religion, anything, that, uh, so they get to know you, they will then um, start changing their feelings. And if they listen to you, they will very likely change their opinion towards the better. So I do encourage everyone to, to try it. And, you know, do not be afraid that maybe uh, they'll end up being uh, mistreated or, or uh, insulted. It can happen, but most likely, in my experience, uh, most people will listen, and then their behavior, their thinking will, will change to the better. Absolutely. So it is dialogue, really, um, that can break 
these these fools and can help us get through to each other and raise awareness. Um, Brother Tariq, thank you very much, Jazakumullah, for for being with us and um, sharing um, this, this this information that you shared with us. And it was really important to understand uh, for our listeners um, how to work around this situation and really great examples that we've gotten from you. And I wish you all the very best. Jazakumullah, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Peace be upon you. Um, we were just uh, speaking with uh, Brother Ataul Munim Tariq, who is a civil engineer um, by profession, but has left his job in 2015 because he wanted to um, devote his life for the sake um, of the work of the Ahmadiyya community for God's work. And since 2018, He's also the editor of the magazine, The Review of Religions in Spanish. Um, now, Islamophobia or people that raise this issue a lot actually talk a lot about the Prophet Muhammad. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Mm. And they want to target him as a man of war, uh, God forbid, or a man uh, that was pro cruelties. Let's have a listen to a quick clip in this regard that explains what the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the pleasing blessings of Allah be upon him, actually was about. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through thirteen long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. So we were just um, listening to a clip that really described the teachings and the character of our Holy Master Muhammad. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Fame, historically speaking, what are some of the causes of Islamophobia? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because the Crusades, 
the religious wars fought between Christians and Muslims in the medieval area um, engendered animosity and fueled a lot of stereotypes against Muslims in Europe. Um, Europeans viewed Muslims as adversaries, laying the groundwork for future biases and misconceptions. Colonial powers imposed their culture and religion on colonized Muslim populations, creating cultural tensions and sowing the seeds of mistrust. Um, and this continued with uh, the imperialistic uh, subjugation of Muslims which led to resentment and a negative perception among the colonizers. Mm -hmm. um, and then Western scholars often approach the study of Islam with these preconceived uh, biases and stereotypes uh, which would per perpetuate those misunderstandings, um, which led to more misrepresentations in the academic scholarship which shaped Western understanding of Islamic culture and contributed to negative stereotypes um, that persist. And um, I think that you, you, when you look at that historical context, you can understand like that, okay, these biases come, but then it's like uh, our guest was saying that when people actually experience or engage with Muslims, they then see... That is completely different. Now mm. we're not barbarians, or like how we may have been portrayed in either uh, the media or in movies or or whatever. Yeah. The Holy Quran states: "Those who spend in prosperity and adversity, and those who suppress anger and pardon men, and Allah loves those who do good." That is what. A Muslim is about hmm. and that is what everyone really should be doing in order for us to break those barriers to really hmm. understand each other what, what more can we do we can for example um, have educational programs which uh, should be designed to provide accurate and unbiased information about the history the culture and the contributions of Muslims in the Western society. Now, these programs can be integrated into school uh, curriculums offered by community organizations and made available through online resources. But I think it is, it is important to emphasize here that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, we, by the grace of God, are doing as much as we can in this regard. Mm. Regular forums, um, events at mosques are being held, which invites externals. As open door policy. Mm. Open door policy. A, a mosque is open to you at any given time of the day. Um, as as recent as last weekend, uh, we had a prayer for all uh, mm -hmm. the the difficulty that is being faced by so many. Um, Prayers for peace, wasn't um, it? Yes, for, for, for so many civilians um, in the Middle East. So there was this, which again united uh, people from all re religious backgrounds and from all walks of life. And this is again what the Ahmadiyya community is about. This is uh, about raising awareness. This is about breaking uh, breaking down walls and getting through to each other on a human level. Because at the at the end of the day. All of us, as human beings, are very similar. Yeah. 
and it is only a handful of people that have certain agendas yeah. that have power that have influence mm. and that are misleading the world and are only causing harm 100% and um with the educational programs like I, I agree with your point so much because it's like we said at the top of the show like our guest concurred is that it's an education issue right people mm. need to they fear things that they don't understand so yeah. like for example if i was in here and someone came and he started doing cartwheels and backflips and i had never seen someone do a cartwheel or backflip or do anything that a gymnast would yeah. do right yeah because of my lack of knowledge of what a gymnast is I would be like, what? What is this? Like, I'd, I'd be scared. I'd be like, are they going to hit me? Like, how are they going to act? What? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen in that situation? Whereas, as soon as I know that what a gymnast is, how they act, and you know the fact that they are able to do cartwheels, backflips, somersaults, or whatever, if they came and did that, I would be less f- fearful. I would then be more understanding or just it wouldn't impact me as much right i just like yeah, yeah just do your thing right like mm. it's, it's it's got nothing to do with me or but it's that lack of understanding mm. that leads to a fear of i think it's a fear of unpredictability yeah. i think it's like i don't know what they're gonna do it's I don't, the, I don't know what's it's the fear of the unknown at the end yeah. of the day right look if you are told that your neighbor um is doing something within his home because you cannot see through mm. the walls um, it is going to create some sort of fear right mm. whenever someone new has moved into your area yeah that person naturally just seems a bit suspicious to you yeah. in the beginning but when you've spoken to him or her a few times you realize okay mm. those people are actually good people right that that's happened to all of us yeah and what helped in this situation was us just dialogue dialogue sitting down with them or just uh, on on the way to work in the morning quick chat uh, we find out oh, okay it's a nice enough family maybe they have two three children this they seem to be nice people and life is good so the fear of the unknown of not being able to see past their walls or not to able to see what's happening inside their house is actually something that's that's causing this discomfort really right yeah so again it it, it comes down to the same topic um whenever us the uh, members of the md community move into various uh, areas one thing we like to do is go to our neighbors or invite them into our house and just mm. have a quick sit down have a quick chat and that just opens so many windows yeah and that opens minds and this just, just, just tells them that look we are just the way you are as well mm. but if we were to sort of seclude ourselves within our own lives and just not um, interact with our neighbors at all it 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 will naturally make us suspicious for them so where we expect non-muslims to not be suspicious mm. and educate themselves I think we should also expect Muslims to be more sort of outgoing and really meeting people integrate integrate and, yeah. within society. Yeah. But then I want to bring it back to what you said earlier as well is that there is also 
it is my responsibility to also figure like to learn about other cultures to learn about other religions because i can't just expect like someone to uh live a certain way or have certain beliefs and then come and explain them to me individually if i have some sort of worries or fears i should either ask them or i should do research from good resources and sources but going back to what you're saying about uh, the educational programs i think that there's more to add to that is the influence of um islam uh on a lot of historical fields such as science arts literature and philosophy um i think we have a great show on versus islam where it discusses the history of islam and um i know that uh, there's a lot of pioneers uh for science that have come uh from muslims uh for example the the father of optometry uh, ibn al-haytham mm. um and i think that when we educate and learn about the impact mm. of these muslim scientists or, or just the impact that islam has had on the world it's uh it's something that will help alleviate some of these fears um and i think it's a responsibility to on everybody to one explain and, and integrate but also if you are worried about something if you're suspicious or something actually try to figure things out try mm-hmm. to understand yep because yep. it's probably a lack of understanding in your part absolutely rather absolutely. than that fear in your head now media as we were hinting towards earlier as well um often portrays muslims in a one-sided negative light um emphasizing extremist actions and ignoring the diversity within the muslim community this um skewed portrayal contributes to the reinforce uh, reinforcement of stereotypes um media um really exaggerates isolated incidents involving muslims reinforcing the belief that these incidents are representative of the entire community and i mean how often have we pointed out certain media outlets giving headlines which um highlight that the individual that committed a crime was a muslim mm. whereas when that person was not a muslim his religion was just left out completely yes. right um social media platforms can amplify uh device uh divisive narratives and misinformation facilitating the spread of anti-muslim sentiments um the holy quran states our lord forgive us and our brothers who preceded us in the faith and leave not in our hearts any rancor against those who believe our lord thou art indeed compassionate <coughs> merciful and in a in a hadith a narration of the prophet may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him it is narrated by abu huraira the prophet said a, a man follows the religion of his friend so each one should consider home he makes his friend hmm. political expression is another yeah so when it comes to politics um often we've seen uh, throughout history right uh, that uh different politicians have exploited fears and a lack of understanding um and they've used those public fears of terrorism and immigration to gain political support which has in turn furthered uh anti-muslim sentiments uh there's this framing of muslims as threats that these 
politicians contribute uh, to and like build and and uh, construct this divisive political climate. Um, this can be often seen with like anti-immigration policies that can disproportionately target Muslim communities, leading to discrimination and marginalization. Um, such of these policies foster um, a resentment and contribute to the stigmatization of Muslims. Um, this we've we've seen politicians and policymakers often link Islam with terrorism in their rhetoric, similar to media uh, influences and biases, uh, which has perpetuated the stereotype that all Muslims are potential threats. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of like that story of us and them. Um, yeah. The association uh, negatively impacts Muslim communities and in, and hinders their integration. Then you know it's 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 kind of like it's got to be on both sides. It's got to be welcoming yeah. as well as integration. Right? Yeah. You can't just expect people to integrate into a society where mm. they're not welcome. Because mm. who wants to who wants to do that? Right. Now, what this is leading to is Islamophobia and some of these stats. Yeah. Um, that we have prepared for our uh, get, uh, listeners is Islamophobic hate crimes hmm. in England and Wales increased by 42% in the year ending March 2022. Hmm. Increased by 42%. Muslims were the most targeted religious group with 3,459 hate crimes recorded against them. Hmm. Hate crimes against Jewish people increased by 23% with uh, 1,919 recorded in a, in a year. Overall hate crimes in England and Wales increased by 26% in the year ending March 2022. A total of 155,841 hate crimes were recorded, the highest increase since the year ending March 2017. Racially motivated hate crimes accounted for 70% of all offences, totaling 109,843 incidents. Racially motivated hate crimes increased by 19% from the previous year. Religious hate crimes increased by 37%, um, the highest ever recorded since 2012. Now, look at those numbers and ask yourself, just because someone somewhere in the world committed crime, committed some sort of atrocity, why would you punish the people that are living within your area or the, mm-hmm. or, or, or the people that have just nothing to do with this at all, yeah. right? How can your own understanding, your own judgment be so clouded from what you have been told by the media that you are punishing civilians, really? Someone who's got nothing to do with this at all. 100%. Right? Yeah. Someone who's really struggling to make ends meet, just goes to work in the morning, comes back in the evening, is is trying to have a a basic life with his family. That Mm. is all they want. So targeting someone for someone else's crimes, again, goes completely against the teachings of the Holy Quran, yeah. of Islam as well. And Well, it's, it's simply, look, if you had two brothers, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and this is where they're related, right? And, and uh, But you've got two brothers, one commits a crime and you feel hatred towards that brother. Why would you punish the other brother who had nothing to do with it and like it's it's this association and this like generalization of yeah. painting every muslim with the same brush and i yeah. get i get that there is a media bias there is political bias that you know and there is rhetoric out there that is impacting people but 
this is where critical thinking comes into it. Mm. You know, mm. do not believe everything that you are told. Just like, you know, don't take it on face value. Islam itself teaches you to question your religion, to learn more about yep. it. Yep. Don't accept it blindly. We're not we're not saying hey don't accept that blindly, but accept accept Islam blindly. Yeah. We're saying question everything, and make educated decisions, right? Based on knowledge, based on fact, and based mm. on experience. Experience you have, not experience that you're hearing second or third hand. Because you know there's even hadith which um, says that yeah. um, hearsay is not like seeing. Yeah. Right. Just because. How many times have you told someone something? I guarantee, if you gathered, you know, five people in a room, mm. right, and you told one one thing, they told the next person, they told the next person, and by that fifth person, it would be a completely different yeah. story. Chinese whisper. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's this way of like making us realize that you know we need to educate ourselves, we need to experience, we need to diversify. Um, the content that we uh, consume, mm, right? Mm. Because we we get stuck in these echo chambers. If you constantly hang around with people who think exactly the same way as you, how can you hear another perspective to then question to learn more? You'll just have your same same thoughts and same beliefs reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. Absolutely. So, um, and a, a question one should ask all these people that are reacting um, to all these news and these influences what difference have you made if yeah. you are attacking someone because mm. he's a Muslim or because he's a Jew or he's a Christian or is a Hindu or is a Sikh what difference have you made mm. right you go out hurting someone or someone's livelihood but did you really bring a solution to the problem mm. from historical point of view when has physical or verbal abuse ever uh, has, has physical or verbal abuse ever brought some sort of solution to a problem exactly that, that, that has never been the case Thank now you. someone is doing something again on the other end of the world be it in the USA or Africa or Asia or the Middle East or in Europe, right? How can you, first of all, punish your neighbor for that? Mm. And secondly, what difference have you made through that? Mm. What, 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 I mean, have you achieved world peace through that? No. So what's the idea? And Have you even hurt the person who did the crime that you're first, exactly. <laughs> first angry with, right? And Absolutely. I think that um, one of the, most fundamental things that I have learned from my religion, Islam, is that I am not in control of how anyone in this world acts or what happens to me. The only thing that I have control over is how I act mm -hmm. and how I deal with whatever situation. Yep. Right? Because, you know, the things we've seen it, people's lives can change the flash of a pan right absolutely and if you if you then don't realize that the only thing that you have control over is how you act and how you 
hold yourself in what you do in the actions you take mm. then you know it's just, that is it. it's just <laughs> that's exactly. the biggest thing that I've learned from Islam and I think that if everybody took that into their own personal lives they would the world would be a happier place and a better place absolutely right we asked our uh, listeners who is to blame for the rise in Islamophobia sentiments and some of the answers we got from you is one said media the another one said the Western media, the political leaders and the warmongers. And another one said who, being Muslims, are not acting according to teachings of Islam. So it is on both sides, definitely, mm. that people that are so-called Muslims that are not, not uh, acting according to the teachings of Islam. And then uh, once they have done the atrocity, it's the media mm. that, that completely takes over and makes sure that this wrong portrayal is brought to the ends of the world. We are coming to the end of, of, of our show for today. Um, thank you very much to our producers for today, which were Sophia Amir and Aisha Malik, and also to our tech team, Majid Tahir, who has been great behind the scenes. We hope that you enjoyed our show today. We hope to see you, or we hope that you join in again tomorrow. Um, till then, please do take care of yourself. Try to educate yourself. Try to raise awareness. Always try to find out yourself before uh, finding out from the media. And that is it from us today. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.